Well, good morning, good morning, well, Woodhaven. Oh, my goodness. I did it again. Why would I do that? Good morning, Woodhaven. I promise you that's not intentional. It's not intentional at all. You know, habits are hard to break, uh, but they must be broken. They certainly must be broken. Praise God for that song, Living He Loved Me, Dying He Saved Me, Buried He Carried My Sins Far, and you say, away. Think about that. He carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified me, and he freed me forever. And one day he's what? What a glorious day it's going to be. Does your heart yearn for that? I'm going to ask that again. Does your heart yearn for that? That's why we gather here, because we know that our Lord loved us and died for us. We know that our Lord is certainly coming back, and it will be a glorious day indeed. Let me just say again, good morning, Woodhaven. And I am, I am grateful to be here. It is uh, always a privilege to share in the ministry of the word. And um, I just want to say this, that um, it's been a joy for the past two and a half months to, to serve this local body. And I mean that. Uh, Nathan, Nathan and I, we've had many conversations leading into this experience. And the one thing that he kept saying over and over and over again, they're just a sweet people. They're just sweet, just sweet. And uh, I, I, I affirm that and I agree with that. And again, it's been a privilege to um, serve this local body. Extremely excited about what the Lord is doing here at Woodhaven. And uh, before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning and to, to hear the preaching of your word. And we think about how your word is the only thing that can truly transform us. We need your word. We need your truth. We need to be transformed. I pray, God, that that would be so today uh, as we are diving into some some, some information, uh, truth that can certainly change us. I pray, God, that this would be a time of edification. I pray, God, that this would be a time where Jesus would be made much of. I pray, God, that at the end of it all, we wouldn't just uh, live for the amen, uh, but that we would strive to obey. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, if... I had to ask you one question, right? And let's say the question would be, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Just take some time to, to process through that. What would it be? What would your favorite book of the Bible be? And another question I'd follow up with would, would be, do you think that your favorite book would make Bible Gateway's top 10 most popular books of the Bible? Right. Some of you that are you're chuckling because you know what Bible Gateway is. Um, what's interesting is that in 2014, Bible Gateway, they ended up looking at their usage data to find out which books were the most popular books of the Bible. And I want to give you the 10 most popular books of the Bible according to Bible Gateway. Let's see if your, your book made the cut. Starting at number 10, number 10 was the book of Acts. Number nine, Isaiah. Number eight was 1 Corinthians. Number seven was Luke. The, the, the anticipation is, is building here. 
Number six was Genesis. Number five was Proverbs. Number four was Romans. Number three was John. Number two, sorry, Nathan, Matthew, not Mark. (laughs) And number one was Psalms, the book of Psalms, just by a show of hands, non-verbally, okay? By a show of hands, raise your hand if your book made the cut. Ah, ah, that's good, that's good. Well, today we're going to spend some time in a book that actually didn't make the cut, and that's okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a book that's, that has uh, weighty theological themes, but it's also a book that is one of the more debated books uh, within the canon of Scripture. And again, this book didn't actually make the cut, but it did make the cut of the inspired and inerrant 66. Okay, so it did make that cut. So, so our time this morning, we're going to actually look at the book of Revelation. And I know when I say Revelation, some of you are thinking, brother, what are you doing? Going to the book of Revelation. Don't do it. Don't go there. Oh, I'm going there. I am going there. Uh, I've gotten permission to go there. (laughs) But I know for many of you, when you think about the book of Revelation, by default, what we automatically do is that we, we default to some type of hermeneutical system. And we begin, we begin to think about uh, maybe the timing of the rapture. Are you pre-mid-post? Right? We maybe begin to think about the millennium when we think about, um, you know, maybe possibly Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. We'll probably go in that direction. But Revelation is an amazing book, and it can it could actually be a, a fairly tough read. And here's why: because there is there is scary imagery in there. Like, let's just be honest. There is imagery. There is symbolism. Uh, there's some numbers that can be very confusing at times. There's there's time references. At times, when you're reading through the Book of Revelation, it, it's almost one of these experiences. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Marvel's Doctor Strange. And if you, some of you are shaking your head, right? yes, I've seen it. Well, in Marvel's Doctor Strange, there are these things called time loops, right? And there are times when you're reading through the book of Revelation, John experiences a time loop. And that happens, that happens very often within Revelation. And while, while this is a, a difficult book, I, I will say this, um, reading Revelation is necessary for us. Uh, With any difficult task, I think if we immerse ourselves in that difficult task and we press a bit deeper, the the task itself can can grow us, it can strengthen us, and it can sharpen us. And I believe that when, when when we approach Revelation and we spend time in it, it does just that. Uh, John actually says that by you and me reading Revelation, we're going to be blessed by it. And Chapter 1, within the prologue, verse 3 specifically, John says this. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And then he goes on to say, and blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in it, for the time is near. So you're blessed by reading this book. Now let me be clear, while we're going to uh, Revelation today, I'm not going to cover the entire book. I don't have license to do that, okay? I'm not going to do that. But with our time this morning, what I want to do is to consider, there we go, 
I want to consider uh, how our Lord informs his bride about the type, of, the type of posture that she must have within the world. And as it pertains to like uh, maintaining an effective witness, there's a posture that the Lord Jesus calls us to have. And what I mean by posture is this. Posture has everything to do with approach and attitude. Uh, the approach and attitude that's necessary to accomplish a particular task and to be effective, effective. And when, when we, we, we see posture, and I want to kind of work this term out a bit, we see posture present in many circumstances, in many contexts. And I, I, think, I think specifically about my past experience as a one-time um, Division I athlete. There was a certain type of posture that I needed to have, an attitude and approach that I needed to have in order to be effective within the game, right? And that posture was necessary certainly for my success, but also for the success of the team. And I want to go on to say that as, as posture is necessary within the realm of athletics, it's, it's also necessary that believers have a posture in our witness as well. And um, mind you, I, I didn't say swagger. I want to say swagger, but I didn't say swagger. And I'm going to save that terminology. Some of you are like, what is swagger? So I'm going to save that terminology for another, for another sermon. Right? I'll be sure to include swagger in that sermon. But I didn't say swagger. The point that I'm making is this, is that Jesus has much to say about our posture and what it ought to be for an effective witness within a fallen world. And Jesus indeed desires that we display an attitude and approach to our posture, to our thought and our practice within a fallen world that honors him. All right. So let's, um, if you can... Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to actually read through um, the first 11 verses of the prologue. And then after we're done reading through the prologue, what we're going to do is transition over to chapters 2 and 3. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must take place soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him 
be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming on. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the, the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a loud trumpet was saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to the churches in Ephesus, the churches in, in, in Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Leo. All right. Hey, let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, we love you and we are grateful for, um, again, your great love for us. Father, give us, give us the ability to, to hear what you have said, certainly to the churches. Uh, help us to think through these things and not just to be thinking through it, but to actually uh, apply it. We don't want this to be a time of just information, but may it be a time of integration Maybe, maybe hear and do certainly what's being heard. And I pray that, God, in your son's name, amen. All right, so I want you to, I know we just read part of the prologue, and I want you to just kind of just slide over to chapters two and three, because that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time, uh, looking at the, the letters to the seven churches. And there, there are free... Three phrases that I want to I want to kind of focus on today that kind of align with where I'm going in terms of posture. And those three phrases, I believe they capture and shape our understanding uh, for the type of posture that Jesus desires of us. And what I want to do is just, just jump into it. And I want to look at the first phrase. And again, we're going to look at phrases and the phrases give us our postures. OK, so let's look at the first posture, first phrase within um, our text this morning. And that first phrase is remember and repent. Remember and repent. This is an interesting phrase because it appears five times in both chapters two and three. And it's a phrase that's actually given as a command to uh, five of the seven churches. And the, the idea is that this command is given to Ephesus, that is the loveless church. It's given to Pergamum, the compromising church. It's given to Thyatira, the corrupt church. It's also given to Sardis, which is the dead church. And then lastly, it's given to Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And the phrase remember and repent, it, it carries with, the, with it a, a tone and a feel that we, we, we don't want to just kind of read over. Right. We don't just want to read over this. And Bill Mounts, he helps us to really consider what this this phrase is communicating. There's there's a Greek imperative that's inherent within this phrase. And he says uh, the, the, the Greek imper imperative that's present, it has a meaning like keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. It also has this meaning where it, where it says to, to hold in memory or to let your minds dwell on it. 
It's very similar to when we think about 9-11. We make sure that we never forget. We never forget. But he takes it a step further, Mounts does, and he says the, the statement itself goes a step further because remembering is not just to bring to mind, but it's to act on it. It's to act on it. And the idea that we're headed towards is that we're to maintain a, a posture where we never forget the price that was paid for us, the price that was paid for our sin. The fact that we, we should know as a people who are a hot mess and in process, right? <laughs> Some of you will get that when you leave, a hot mess and in process. We should know and we should remember that our sin is messy, right? It's messy. And that, that the price that was paid for us through the gospel, it, it was a costly price. And then we, we should be a people who see the messiness of our sin. We consider the price that was paid. And we should be a people who treasure the work of Christ. And when, when those things are at work and present within us, it, it, it helps us to develop a posture where we, we actually delight in actively making a break with whatever displeases the Lord. All right? Because of the price that was paid, we'll make a break with it. We remember and we repent. Now, this posture of repent, uh, remember and repent, it has a really interesting way in which it, could, it can uh, like apply for us individually and corporately. And, you know, when we think about how it applies for us individually and corporately, individually, it, maybe it's in the context of marriage, maybe it's in the context of parenting, maybe it's in the context of just, uh, you know, some type of strained relationship. But maybe corporately, maybe... Remember and repent plays itself out where we are maybe lamenting over the egregious injustices that exist in society that dehumanizes people who are made in the image of God. And again, it's a variety of ways that it plays itself out. And the point here is that Jesus is called, he's calling these, these five churches to remember and repent. And this is a posture that he calls us to as well. Again, this is a posture that he calls us to as well. I want to go on to the second posture. The second posture, it's within the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is a, this is a, a phrase that's actually given to all seven churches in chapters two and three. And it's also given as an imperative. Uh, and this is despite the political and economic circumstance that they find themselves in, is given as an imperative. And the phrase, really, it functions as a prophetic warning to the seven churches. And this is a warning that they need to have their eyes, uh, have their minds open and their hearts open to kingdom truths. Now, we've got to keep in mind that just because you have ears, it doesn't mean that you hear well. All right? Let me try that again. <laughs> Just because you have ears, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are, you are, uh, you've arrived at listening well. Anyone who's been around kids know this to be true. <laughs> well, I know many of you won't say that of yourselves, but if you've been around kids, yeah, you know this to be true. 
right? And this, this, this hearing and listening, this hearing and listening for us as believers, it has to be intentional and purposeful. Uh, and it's helpful to note, if you want to make a mark in your Bible, wherever you see he who has an ear, let him hear. It's helpful, um, it's helpful to note that, so hearing for the believer has everything to do with obedience. It has everything to do with obedience, what we put into practice. And while, while obedience, based off the verse, is certainly intentional and it's purposeful, obedience is not disconnected from the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God that brings about this obedience, and we align ourselves with that, and we obey. We obey. Think about Galatians 5, um, looking at verses 16 through 25. And I'm not going to read that, but that's a good reference but the second posture, it directs our attention to the role and priority of the Spirit within our lives and our obedience to the truth of God. Uh, in Philippians 2, chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, Paul, he, he, he puts it this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, hearing, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But remember, it's not disconnected from the Spirit of God, because it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. I like how H.B. Charles kind of uh, frames this for us. He's a pastor at Shiloh Metropolitan Church. He says, remember, believer, it is the will of God to use the word of God by and through the Spirit of God to make the people of God look like the Son of God. Think about that. It's the will of God to use the word of God by and through the spirit of God to make the people of God look like the son of God. And I think a question that we need to consider as we think through this second posture of he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. We need to think about, OK, well, how does this actually play out in our lives? How does this play out in our lives? Where have we been loveless? like the church of Ephesus? Where have we uh, compromised in our apprehension and applic application of truth like Pergamum? Where, and in, or more so, in what ways have we become corrupt like Thyatira? Where have we become dead in our spiritual fervor like Sardis? Where have we become lukewarm in our affections for God like Laodicea? And again, just gives us an opportunity to kind of think this through. Jesus is summoning, again, these seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. He says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And he's summoning us to, to have that very posture as well. It's Nancy Piercy, when, it, when, it, when we think about this posture and our obedience to truth, Nancy Piercy she says that, that truth, our obedience to truth, Christianity is total truth, not just religious truth. This isn't just truth that we celebrate on a Sunday, but this is uh, all the time, in all ways, 365 days of the year type of truth, right? That it, we, we never escape it. It's truth that affects 
who we are as men and women. It's truth that affects our marriages. It's truth that affects our, our singleness. It's truth that affects what we think we are as a political person. It's truth that affects us as a social person. It's truth that affects us as emotional and intellectual individuals. It's total truth. And again, the Lord Jesus is summoning us to hear what the Spirit has said to the church, to obey. The third posture, and we're going to end on this third posture, it's a, it's a phrase that's uh, it's in chapter 3, and it's a phrase that's used just once. Uh, but that third posture says, Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And we see this in Revelation chapter 3, and we look at verse 8, it states that, and this is the, the idea of having kept my word and not denied my name. What it's communicating is just faithfulness. But faithfulness, when we read these two chapters, faithfulness is said certainly of Philadelphia, but it's also said of and true of Smyrna. And that both have maintained this posture of faithfulness to the, real, to the revealed truth of Christ in the gospel message. They've maintained this posture. But Jesus says specifically of Philadelphia, he says, look, you guys have kept my word. You've guarded the gospel. You've obeyed it. And you're doing all of this where there is economic, political, and religious mar marginalization that's happening. There's suffering that's being experienced by these groups. And what's, what's, what's helpful for us is that, you know, as we gather this morning, uh, uh, Ron took some time to actually um, kind of touch on the fact that today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we think about organizations like Voice of the Martyr, we think about organizations like International Christian Concern that are in the trenches, on the front line, maintaining a certain type of posture and supporting believers that are experiencing like some extreme suffering. And what's, what's, what's interesting when we think about uh, what Jesus says in uh, chapter 3, and he's saying this to Philadelphia, and he says, you have kept my word and you've not denied my name. I believe for, for Philadelphia, for the persecuted church, and for us as well, Jesus, about this, he demands faithfulness. He demands it from his bride. And I know that may kind of, he's like, wait a second, is that legalism or something? No. You got to understand who our king is. He demands it. But we'll take it a step further. Not only does he demand it, but in light of who he is, what haven? He's worthy of it. He's worthy of faithfulness. Jesus is worthy of faithfulness. I believe that when when a church begins to experience um, unfaithfulness, when a church begins to lose her witness, the witness is no longer effective within society. What precedes it certainly is unfaithfulness. What precedes it is the reverse of what we see in verse in chapter three, verse eight. Rather than you have kept my word, it's you have not kept my word. Right? 
And obviously the other one would be, you know, rather than you having not denied my name, it's, no, you have denied my name. Diagnostic for unfaithfulness is callousness to the revealed truth of Christ in the gospel. I want you to think about that. Callousness. Is that creeping into your hearts? Callousness? If so, we need to remember who our God is. Um, and we need to remember that um, he gives us the grace by and through his spirit to identify those areas of our lives that certainly are not in alignment with what he desires for us. So with this, this final posture, I think, it's, I think it's necessary to think about, again, what this posture looks like in our lives, uh, because there, there are, we're going to experience um, circumstances where um, just the, 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 the intensity of life will swell and the waves will come crashing down. Matthew, Matthew 7 states that. Right? There are going to be waves that are going to, that are going to hit your home, going to hit the foundation of your faith. And when we think about the waves that are coming, and I was telling the youth group this morning, hey, buddy, you, guys, you, you can't opt out of this. We can't opt out of this. But they're coming. They're coming. The question is, will it be said of us that we have kept his word and we have not denied his name? Will that be said of that? Will that be said of us? Can it be said of us? So I want to I I wrap this up and... Again, the title of the message was Dear Church. And again, uh, John is certainly writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to uh, the seven churches in chapters two and three. And what we're, con- what we're focusing on this morning is considering what Jesus has to say about a posture within the world that leads to effective witness. We're reminded by John that here's what our Lord's here's what our Lord desires of us. He desires that we remember and repent. It's the first posture, a posture of remembering and repenting, never forgetting the price that was paid for our sin. The second posture, he desires that we listen to and obey the Spirit of God, particularly as the Spirit of God, right, the Paraclete the comforter, as he leads us, and guides us in all truth. And then lastly, we need to maintain a posture where we remain faithful to the words, the person, and the work of Christ. And here's why. Because Jesus, Woodhaven, is worthy. I'm going to say that three more times. Jesus, Woodhaven, is worthy. Two more times. Jesus, Woodhaven, he's worthy. Last time, because I prepped you for it. Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, God, for, again, the love that you have for us. And we're grateful that we could uh, spend time thinking about the ways in which you've informed us as your bride to consider our posture in, in a fallen world. 
Father, you, you demand that our posture be a particular way. You're worthy of posturing in that way. And I pray, God, that what, what's, been, what's been communicated would actually resonate in the hearts of the people here. I pray, God, that uh, as we consider how you have communicated uh, your truth as it pertains to how we should posture to the seven churches, I pray what, what, what would be the engine for that would be the gospel. As we consider him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And I pray that our, in our living, what would exude from our living would be worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. I pray that what would exude from our living would be to Jesus be glory and honor and dominion and power and might. I pray that that would be true of us, God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.